Welcome to Dell Radio, the podcast where a bunch of nerdy book publishers talk about the books, film, and miscellaneous media that are bringing us joy this week. I'm Ashley. And I'm Julie. We're two marketers who work at Del Rey. Let's seek new worlds. So, as we mentioned last week, in an effort to help shine a light on the somewhat opaque world of book publishing, Ashley and I will be using our Delray intro each episode to try and answer some of your burning questions about the business. So, we polled you guys on social media this last week, and kind of unsurprisingly, you guys want to hear about editorial. There's actually two different ways that we could approach this question, so I thought we could break it down into two different answers. So on the one hand, there's editorial from the perspective of a uh, aspiring writer and author, and then there's editorial from the actual work of being an editor. And Julie, you are actually on top of being an amazing marketer, are a published author. So I thought you could first take our readers through the process of getting your manuscript in the hands of an editor. So this is where I take my marketing hat off and put on my author one. So yeah, so I'm not working my lovely day job at Del Rey. I author children's books, mostly about Asian American historical figures. And I would say step one, after you've finished a book and feel like it's ready to meet the world and you want to get your book published traditionally, the most common next step is to find a literary agent to represent you. Look at the books that are closest to the kind of book you want to push out into the world and flip to the back of the acknowledgements page. If the author liked the agent, the agent usually is thanked. And then it's just a matter of Googling and Googling to find out A, if the agent is open to submissions and then B, exactly how they want to be pitched. Most agents will ask for a query letter and for you to attach the manuscript. Some agents will only want partial manuscripts and not the whole thing. The key is reading comprehension because as you can imagine, agents are getting tons and tons of submissions at all times of the day from a million different people. And what they want to do is on honestly, to make sure you're serious and that you're serious about them. So oftentimes they will actually have fairly specific details of how they want to receive a submission. And they will automatically weed out people who are trying to blanket spam a bunch of agents at once. Jargon alert, what's a query letter? A query letter is basically um, an emailed pitch that encapsulates what your book is about, what you are about in, I would say, probably three or four paragraphs. That is the most important communication that you can do because not only is it the first time an agent is going to be reading something, so the making sure that you don't have errors. You don't want to write it too lengthy so that they have to like read paragraphs and paragraphs to actually get to what the book is actually about. So I would say keep it short, keep it friendly. Writing a good query letter is a good mix of both understanding the agent you're pitching and kind of knowing the levers that would and the keywords that would make them interested in your book, but then also following almost the news writing protocol, like the inverted pyramid. Were you a journalism major, Ashley? <laughs> I don't know if you. Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't a journalism major, but I did do journalism uh, in high school, and I had a I had a Dallas Morning News internship, so I am very familiar with that <laughs> good old inverted period. But yeah, you start exactly. with the most important thing first. You want to get that right out of the way, and then you know it. The, the lesser important, you know, comes later, but you really want to hit them with that first opening sentence. Absolutely. Query letter 101. It is a total waiting game. And as soon as you sort of get a response, and it could take, again, like months and months and months before you get hear anything back. 
an agent is not necessarily needed in publishing if you're publishing with a smaller publisher, but it is needed for the big five, what we call it, big five publishers, including Penguin Random House. Basically, you can't submit an unsolicited manuscript is what we call that. So that basically means just a manuscript without an agent. And I will say, like, even if an agent isn't required, I think, Julie, you've said this before, an agent really is in your best interest. They're the ones who's going to not only fight for you to get your book published, but also when it comes to the contracts phase, when it comes to helping you navigate the publishing world, an agent is really going to be your best resource. So definitely, definitely recommend that. Getting an agent is really step one in a very long process, because not only do you want to get an agent, but not just any agent. You want an agent who is reputable, who does not make predatory asks. You hear horror stories of agents asking for crazy things, like even asking payment for authors to represent them. And that is not how it goes. An agent should never, ever ask you for payment as an author. An agent is going to take your work and based off of how they've sold your book to the publisher, they take a percentage of the cut. Definitely keep that in mind. And with that, we're going to wrap up this week's discussion of editorial. Tune in next time for part two, where we'll discuss what it's like to work with an editor, as well as what it takes to be an editor. If there are any phrases we mentioned that you haven't heard before, I highly recommend checking out bookjobs.com. Not only is the website a great tool for finding publishing job listings, they also have a handy-dandy commonly used terms page with a glossary of helpful publishing terminology. And no, this is not a sponsored ad. And now I'd love to dial in our marketing colleague, Daniel Wykey, to hear what he's up to. Hi, Daniel. How are hey, you doing? Good. How are you? Hi, Daniel. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Random House? I'm an assistant director of marketing at the Random House Group. Um, I kind of have an interesting role. I work for the imprints Tensity Press and Clarkson Potter, doing a lot of branded lifestyle, cookbooks, pop culture. Um, but then I also, as you guys know, work on the Del Rey side as well, where I do licensed science fictions. And I think licensed publishing and branded publishing is such an interesting area of the industry that a lot of people don't really realize is out there. Yeah, I feel like the world of branded and lifestyle publishing is always a little less well-known than traditional publishing. Could you tell us how you got into it? Well, in college, I guess, I was really into home cooking, actually, and, and I was buying a lot of cookbooks. Um, but I found out that the imprint of the cookbooks that I was buying, Tenspeed Press, was actually based in Berkeley, which is where I was going to school. So I kind of just cold emailed some email address I found, and I think I'm really lucky that I was able to kind of get my foot in the door and intern. Um, I know a lot of people are not as lucky as I am, and hopefully that's, that's changing. Um, but yeah, I'm really happy with how it ended up. You know, I'm a huge food lover, so I'm happy that I'm able to still kind of work on kind of the beautiful bespoke cookbooks. But I'm also, you know, I was an actually an anthropology major that studied gore. So I'm really kind of happy to be, have both of my kind of pop cultural interests yeah, figured out here in terms of like the food world and cookbooks and like the sci-fi fantasy world. I love that story, Daniel. <laughs> I did not know it. I know. It's kind of a weird trajectory, but it kind of seems like it ended up in a, in a good place. And what would you say has been the most useful skill set for someone who might be interested in um, doing something similar to what you do? People that like books are nice people. And I think that just being nice and asking questions and being inquisitive and curious really gets you ahead. But um, if people are interested in marketing specifically, I'd say there are so many amazing brands doing really interesting work now. Like even in the past five years, like brands aren't just kind of doing, I don't know, flipping advertorials or something like that. Like look at Ben and Jerry's who really chose to take a stand in like light of the recent Black Lives Matter movement. I think people think of marketing and advertising as things that are really salesy and don't really have meaning. And I think if you're interested in getting a sense of kind of what a career in marketing could look like, just looking at some of your favorite brands and seeing how they're trying to tie into the moment and 
not just promote their products, but also try and do some good. I think it's also really interesting and kind of spark inspiration. As a virtual room full of marketers, I very much appreciate that answer. <laughs> very much so. Also, one thing that we've been asking our staff members that come on uh, to this podcast is what's been keeping you happy and sane during lockdown. So have you developed any new hobbies or is there a new TV show or movie that you've been watching? What's what's keeping you oh, going? Man, yeah, I mean, I, so I was thinking about this. I have like, I just started this new book actually called Kingdoms of Elfin. It's by Sylvia Townsend Warner. It's, it's not new, actually. It's new to me. <laughs> so not actually new at all. But um. She was a writer, I think her, I think she passed away, I want to say like in the 70s. This is actually her last book. It's a collection of short stories kind of all about elfendom and fairy. It's so arch and dry and witty. She's this amazing author. I actually read another book by her a few months ago called Lolly Willows, which is a weird title. That was a book about, it was like written in like the 20s, I want to say. And it's about this woman who becomes disillusioned with her marriage and decides, you know what, I'm going to leave my husband and become a witch. And it's a similar, just like, almost like a super early, like feminist narrative, but also like kind of fantastical. I emphasize in folklore in college and fairy tales always have like a comforting draw for me. So this book is both literary and interesting, but also just, you know, has that sense of magic and I've really been enjoying it. How did you discover her? You know, I don't even remember. I know that Neil Gaiman, he's, he's always like kind of praising her. He's like, always in the blurbs of these of the editions of the books that I find they're only out from like very boutique presses in like Europe or somewhere else I think a lot of it is out of print but um I know he's a big fan of hers that's one of the things that, have, that has been really keeping me occupied quick question about folklore is there a specific area of folklore or mythology that you focus on or have a primary interest in it wasn't like a default major it was like an emphasis actually went into it again, really kind of wanting to do something with fairy tales. And there is like a whole branch of that that's like fairy tale studies. You hear about like tale types, like the, the Snow White tale type, the Little Red Riding Hood tale type. Like there's all these, there's like a folkloric analysis part to that. So I thought that was what I would really get into. But in school, I actually was super into early Christianity, which is I found really fascinating. You know, I think I just somehow, especially not being brought up religious, it was just interesting to see just where everything started from. Yeah, or even just like taking a look at these sort of holy scriptures from an idea of narrative and structure, I think is totally really cool. And from history too. And then I guess I should answer your question too. I mean, I do really love Scandinavian folklore as well. I'm actually trying to do Duolingo Swedish (laughs) during pandemic, which isn't happening with much success, but um, you you never know, maybe it'll me read some more. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. I set out at the beginning of pandemic with the goal of duolingoing Japanese and that has not happened. (laughs) I think I got maybe like a four day streak and then I was like, ah, I've got like some very basic characters down. I'm good to go for now. It's so sad. (laughs) So maybe I should pick it up. It's so sad too because that owl, you know, like the owl, uh, like avatar or whatever, it will like give you a push notification every day. Definitely after a few days, it'll just be like, well, we haven't heard from you. So I guess we'll now and it's so so yeah. bleak <laughs> i guess uh i guess you uh gave up um yeah. bye yeah, <laughs> yeah. <Dragny> owl, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for your time daniel this was wonderful yeah thanks for having me always good to hear a fellow human's voice uh that doesn't live within 800 feet of me uh so this is very good <laughs> likewise all right bye. thank you so much This week's author and editor interview features Madeline Rue, who wrote the latest World of Warcraft novel, Shadows Rising, plus the editor of the book, Tom Holler. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Tom Holler, one of the editors at Delray on the licensing team. And today I have the absolute pleasure to chat with Madeline Rue, New York Times bestselling author. 
her latest novel, which I had the pleasure of working with her on, came out last week. It's called World of Warcraft Shadowlands Shadows Rising. It is the epic, amazing prequel novel to the next big expansion in the Warcraft franchise. So Madeline, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. It's so exciting to talk to you and exciting to be here. Uh, I love talking about books and this book in particular. It's been so much fun to work on and also just a lot of fun to promote. <laughs> I've been on 16 podcasts for it now and they're all a ton of fun. So I'm sure this one will be no different. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, no pressure, no pressure. All right, we're going to make this good. <laughs> we are definitely going to talk about Shadows Rising and Warcraft and your relationship to Warcraft and all that in a second. But I wanted to start with, you have a really interesting beginning to your writing career because you started with a fiction blog called Allison Hewitt is Trapped. And what inspired you to sort of begin your writing career with a story in that particular format? And how did that inform your beginnings as a storyteller and writer? Sure, yeah. I mean, it was a really unusual circumstance. I was actually finishing up my first sort of traditional novel. It was a historical romance sort of mystery thing. And it was so much research. It was really an intense research process. And I would just sort of get tired of doing so much research. So I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun if I just kind of wrote something set in modern day and I could just do it a little quicker and it would be more of just, just to have fun. Yeah, I mean, how lame is that? Like my vacation from writing was more writing. <laughs> but but that's, that's how it was back then. And um, yeah, this is about 10 years ago now. And so I just started publishing this zombie survival blog where it was sort of in real time, one chapter, almost one chapter a day, uh, some weeks. And people started to find it and they would comment and then I would sort of weave their commentary into the narrative as well because people were sort of commenting almost in character. So I had a character and then all these strangers on the internet came in and they had characters and uh, yeah, so I just started kind of pulling them into the story and I would respond to their questions. And so it was sort of a blog, but also a book at the same time. And uh, I just got really lucky. It's, I started to have it posted on a few different places it kind of blew up on Reddit for a little while. And it was about halfway done or about halfway up on the internet. And it's still there. It's like there is an artifact, I guess. And uh, my agent's brother stumbled across it on, on Reddit and, and said, hey, you should check this out. And uh, yeah, that's how I found my agent, Kate. And we're still together 10 years later. And it was wild. I mean, I think if anything, what I think it taught me was to work really quickly. And, you know, you had people commenting like, okay, where's the next, <laughs> where's the next chapter? I really want more. And so it kind of instilled in me this ability to to write a book really fast. And I know that that can be a skill that's useful, especially sort of in like franchise and IP writing, because the deadlines can be pretty nuts. But uh, yeah, so I think that would probably be the biggest takeaway was just this ability to sort of like just hunker down and, and work very quickly. It sounds like not just an ability to respond quickly, but like an ability to iterate across an entire world. Like you didn't just start with a single story. You're like, oh, I'm just going to create now this living world and I'm going to have my readers actually influence and impact the world as it evolves, which almost sounds like you had created like the book version of a multiplayer online game. So no wonder that you eventually found yourself writing for things like Warcraft. It's pretty kind of astounding that this kind of core idea became this much larger evolving story with feedback from the actual readers. Yeah, it was really interesting. And, you know, when we published it, I sort of had to go back and get permission from everyone <laughs> to say like, hey, is it okay if, if you're in this book? You know, are you all right if I put you in the, the final novel? And everyone was just stoked, you know, so 
um, yeah, it was really interesting. It was such a cool way to write something. It was really um, sort of collaborative. And it also gave me a lot of energy to work every day because I sort of had this like, oh, okay, I know someone's going to come in and make a comment and it's going to sort of inspire something. So it was a, a really unique way to build a novel. That's actually a really a great and kind of perfect segue into one of the biggest things I want to talk about is that, you know, for, for this most recent book for Shadows Rising, you know, you're writing in an established world. You're writing in a, someone else's sandbox, you know, so to speak. And so what are the biggest challenges that you bring to writing in one of those established worlds? What sort of like research process do you take into these kind of established world projects where you're stepping into a world that someone else has built? For Warcraft, it was really unique because I've been playing that game for 15 years on and off. So a lot of what I started with was just sort of this like overtime osmosis, <laughs> all the all the themes and feelings and nostalgia that I'd sort of absorbed from playing the game for so long. And just in general, a love for the universe. It has been with me for so, so many years. But research wise, you know, there's so many points of view in this book. <laughs> there's, you know, what, 15 characters or something that, that each have a point of view. And so that takes a lot of research because you want to, you know, nail the way they speak. You want to make sure they feel in character. So I would watch a ton of YouTube videos, honestly, uh, whoever I was working with that day, I would just watch cutscenes from the game, watch their cinematics, I would read, you know, excerpts from the novels they've appeared in or the comic books and just try to soak all of that in so that when you're sitting down to work that day, you really have this kind of holistic vision of, of who this character is over the whole lifespan of their appearance in the game. So yeah, it was a lot of research, honestly, even though I play a lot, <laughs> I still think, you know, there are corners of the universe that you just don't know as much. And so whoever you're, you're sort of dealing with that day, you have to come in and say, all right, block out 45 minutes of YouTube time. And we're going to watch how they talk, how they how they move, just sort of try to really like pull in every little detail so that even if it doesn't come up right in that chapter, I still have it in the back of my mind. So you're sort of constantly informed by their whole appearance in this universe. That idea of like these very long-lived characters and in a kind of an entire civilization of very long-lived characters is one of the things that distinguishes Warcraft from other brands or entities or, or storytelling environments. For people who may not be as familiar with like the sort of depth to Warcraft, obviously Warcraft is sort of popular and well-known and, and long-lived enough that I think most people have probably heard of it in some form or another. What would you say are the things that kind of distinguish Warcraft and storytelling in Warcraft from either other brands or entities or just fan? fantasy in general? What are the things that seem either unique or intrinsic to Warcraft to you, either as an author and or as a player, given that you've, you've spent so much time literally embodying part of the world? I think one of the things I fell in love with first with the game was this sense of, you know, if you're familiar with something like Lord of the Rings, which is also a huge fantasy property, Warcraft gives you the opportunity to take the side of like Mordor, you know, or these characters that in other fantasy settings would be considered bad or or evil or the enemy. You get to play as that side and see that, no, 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 they have their own values and cultures and their people too, essentially. And so this this really unique setup where there's kind of no villain, really. I mean, sometimes there's outside dangers that appear and threaten the whole world, but from a sense of there's all these different factions, but they all have a perspective. And I know when I was writing the book, that was really important to me to make this feeling of even for this sort of third faction that we now have that people like to think are the villains, I just never wanted to approach writing any of the characters as, oh, this is a bad person or this is an evil person, right? Like I wanted everyone to have their own agenda and their own motivations and 
and their own past that really informed how they act. So you're kind of getting to see this perspective of who would usually in other fantasy settings just be the characters that you're kind of sent to kill, right? And they they don't have a culture that you care about, but you really get to peer behind that in this universe. And you get to, you know, you play as an orc or you play as a troll, you play as a goblin, that sort of thing. So then obviously as part of your research, you know, you were not just watching YouTube clips and stuff, but I imagine that you were continuing to just play the game as you have played it. So how does either on the research side or just like in your own time now playing, how it is having like written and contributed part of the story changed your experience as a sort of fan and player of the game? You know, I think I'm a lot more observant of the small things now when I'm in the world. You know, I always read the quest text, right? I always pay attention, but I think I I think I pay attention on a really <laughs> a really intense granular level now, even to just sort of the conversation like, you know, if you're in the game world, characters will be walking by and sort of just bantering, just kind of talking about their day, but even that sort of stuff now I stop and follow them for a little while and listen to what they're saying because I guess I just have a new appreciation for how much writing is in this game, how many little tiny details are littered everywhere, how much work it takes to put that in there and to try to make it feel consistent and exciting. Obviously, it can't just be boring, (laughs) boring little snippets all the time. So it's this really cool, immersive storytelling that's going on all around you. And now that I've contributed in a small way, when I'm in the game itself, I just I'm so observant. I'm so like hyper observant of everything that's happening and how things are written and trying to see, okay, I hope, you know, I hope what I did really fits in here. And yeah, and I I think that's maybe why it was so much fun to work on this, because I've always appreciated the game world so much. I love pulling in tiny details and and hiding it in the book and, and making it feel like, yeah, no, I really, I really know this world. I really love it. So the whole book, hopefully, I tried to be specific enough that you could almost walk through it in the game if you wanted to. You could just go to those locations and almost like role play it out if you really wanted to. But now, now, yeah, I am, I have a new appreciation for everything when I'm in the game now. And I'm Am I correct in that you you are actually in the game in some form? You're sort of <laughs> slightly immortalized within Warcraft? Is this true? That is true. The rumors are true. I am in the new expansion. <laughs> um, I, honest to God, just wept when I when I saw it. I, I didn't know. I knew it was perhaps coming. Um, and then someone someone sent me a picture of my character in the game and I just it completely broke me. Um it's so it's so cool. I yeah, I'm like this eight foot tall undead gladiator in in one of the new zones in the expansion, and yeah, it's just the the coolest thing ever. I can't wait to go see her and take a million pictures and <laughs> and just I don't know, just live my full my full Warcraft fantasy. I don't know. It's it's so exciting and honestly so humbling. I I still don't even really know how to how to interpret it. So maybe someone will end up cosplaying as your your in-game avatar or you could, I mean you could as well, but maybe other people will too. Well, I have friends who are so good at cosplay, they've actually won the the Blizzard costume contest. And I've already had some of them reach out and tell me they want to build this costume for me. So perhaps it, it may be in my future. You have mentioned several times that there is sort of a lot of work and a lot of writing and prep that goes into it. And so that's definitely one of the things that I wanted to make sure we chat about, because for listeners on the show, I think a lot of them are familiar, obviously, with the kinds of publishing that Delray does broadly and the genre publishing. But I don't know that they all know too much about the licensing and sort of IP side of what we do. So one of the things I want to talk about is that 
one of the big pieces of the process of us working together was outlining. And particularly at the beginning, having to do a pretty intense outline process in order to get the story set up and make sure that all of the general places we wanted to take the characters in the story were where we wanted them to go so that you obviously wouldn't get too far down the road in writing on a manuscript and be told, actually, what if we just started over and did something different? Because I know authors love to hear that kind of thing. <laughs> so my question is, A, do you use outlining in your own work? And what is your general approach to outlining? Because I'm not sure that it's something that all authors kind of use across the board. But when it comes to something like licensed publishing, like Warcraft, it's basically a requirement. Honestly, the further I get into my career, I used to not outline much at all, if if any. But now the, you know, I'm what, this was my 13th book, I think. And the, the deeper I get into it, the more books I have to work on at the same time. I find outlining so useful and I've, I've really adopted it into my personal practice. And I really do suggest it now. For me, it saves a lot of time and it really gives you a roadmap. And so I think it's, it's a lot harder to get stuck when you know exactly what's coming next. I wrote this book, Shadows Rising, quite quickly. And that was only because we had such an, like a very, very, very specific outline. And I, at every point, I knew what had to come next. It was really easy to just sit down and get to work because I knew, okay, like this is the next chapter. There was this like skeletal structure already built for me. And I really think it's useful for authors, especially authors who struggle to sort of stick with a project or see a project through. I think if you have that hyper specific roadmap, if you know at every point what's coming next, I think it's much harder to get lost. It's much harder to get stuck. So I find it super valuable. And with a project like this, I mean, you just want to make sure everyone's on the same page before you commit and, and do a whole bunch of work and then discover that it's not actually what anyone wanted. So I think for, for everyone's sanity and everyone's time, it's really just the best way to do things. It's funny because I used to be really <laughs> allergic to outlining and earlier in my career. I just was like, no, that's stupid. Why would, I, why would I do that? I can just figure this out as I go along. And now older and wiser and much busier, <laughs> I, I've discovered that, no, actually, I think outlining is an incredibly, incredibly useful tool. I too used to be pretty allergic to outlining when it came to sort of schoolwork and project work. But yeah, as I've gone along in editorial, I've begun to appreciate outlines more and more and more. And and you're right, it's you know, it's also one of those things that it's way easier if you have a new thought or if something pivots that you just need to change, say, I don't know, two paragraphs of an outline versus, say, 50 pages of a manuscript. Yes. Theoretically, it's all, it keeps you from a lot of headaches. Yeah. <laughs> it should show you problems early if you're doing it correctly. Yes. And the good thing is, too, that even with an outline like this, where we really were trying to lock down a framework before you get started, outlines still leave you room to be creative and evolve over time that if and when you do start to get into the writing, you find that the story needs to go in a different direction. It's not to say that you couldn't do that. So it still leaves all that flexibility. It just kind of helps you put some more stakes in the foundation probably at the start of a project. Yes, I would 100% agree with that. How has your experience been kind of engaging with the larger community of Warcraft and hearing people engage with your story as it relates to their personal journey within Warcraft and how like their own characters perhaps would react to your story or how they view your story within like their larger personal story with Warcraft? You know, it's been really, really interesting and overwhelming and, and honestly heartwarming. I, there's just been such an incredible outpouring of support from the community that I, I honestly didn't, ex I didn't know what to expect. I, I was hopeful that people would like it. And, and like me, you know, you're, you're always hoping that you always like validation and you always want to make people happy. So there's a range of opinions, but 
so far, all the fans I've interacted with have been so cool and so respectful. And honestly, just seeing how excited they are is incredibly rewarding. And to go on some of these podcasts and and have them say, you know, we can really tell you like love this universe. That to me is the best possible praise because it's 100% true. I absolutely love World of Warcraft. It's always been a big part of my gaming life. And just to hear that what resonates with me resonates with them is incredible. And we got a chance to sort of put more LGBTQ plus representation in this book. And the outpouring of support from that community has been incredible just to hear people's personal stories of like, I'm a gay World of Warcraft player. And this means a lot, you know, it means a lot to see this representation to see my life and my values reflected back to me. So getting to do that has been just incredible. And and it's so humbling. And it just makes me so proud of what the team is is trying to accomplish with this book. And it's incredibly moving. And I feel like I'm on the, the verge of tears every day because someone emails me or DMs me with something really sweet and positive. And I, I couldn't imagine a, a nicer response from a you know, the vast majority of fans that I've interacted with so far. So it's honestly surreal in so many ways, because I just feel like a fan, you know, I'm just kind of part of this fandom. And to get to see people react to it is crazy. <laughs> it's, you know, it's it sort of just doesn't feel real yet. But yeah, it's been it's been overwhelmingly positive so far. That's awesome. So as we, we wrap up here, I wanted to just give you one last chance to let people know where they might be able to find you and find your books and find more awesome stories that you have written. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm most active, I would say, on Twitter, probably. You can find me at AuthorRoux, A-U-T-H-O-R-O-U-X. It's the same on Instagram. I have a Facebook fan page. You can just search my name, Madeline Rue. It should pop up. I have a publicly listed email most of those places. So if you have any questions, concerns, anything like that, you can reach out to me. And uh, yeah, you can go to my website, madeline-rue.com and you should see all my books there. I've got lots of different things, horror and sci-fi, young adult, adults, anything and everything. So <laughs> I hope you check those out. And this has been fabulous, Tom. You're a great interviewer. Thank you. Uh, I very much appreciate that. Um, <laughs> So thank you again to Madeline. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Dell Radio. And we'll be back real soon with more interviews from your favorite authors, more stories, and more info about Delray books. Have a good one. This week's audiobook excerpt is from World of Warcraft Shadows Rising, written by Madeline Rue and narrated by Susan Wacoma. Much as it surprised him, the dry heat and endless noise of Orgrimmar felt like home. Perhaps it was like returning to a wayward, peculiar family, one Thrall had not necessarily chosen, but that he had come to respect. Thrall, son of Durotan, former war chief, had expected to recoil at the familiar scents and mayhem of the Horde city. But he slipped back into its rhythm with surprising ease. In a way, the familiarity of it frightened him. Things had changed, of course. The Horde itself had changed. It had to. No longer could a single war chief rule them all. No. Like a strange family, the Horde had grown, suffered, expanded, retracted, and finally, he thought, they were beginning to find their feet not as different nations united by a single voice, 
but as a chorus of strong voices raised as one. Wolves grew stronger as a pack in numbers, and there in Grommash Hold, among the Horde Council, he saw many fine wolves at his side. Do not fear this, he thought, gazing around at those assembled. You lead no one. You simply sit among equals. His pride did not chafe at the thought. In fact, he welcomed it. Thrall placed his hands on his knees, leaning forward as two young Tauran braves given report in the centre of the rotunda finished recalling their tale. They had sighted two dark ranger spies on a ridge in the northern barrens, and after alerting a senior patrol in the area, the rangers were tracked and captured. The spies had swallowed some foul concoction and died before they could be questioned. But still, they would no longer be allowed to be the dark lady's eyes in Doratar. A smattering of applause went around the room, and the two braves stood tall, puffing out their furred chests and holding their spears straight. Thrall couldn't stop himself from wondering how long they would live. What cold, bleak place far from here would be their end? What families they would leave behind as they gave themselves over as grist to the mill of war? No. No. They were putting a stop to all of that. That was the purpose of the council. To eschew the bloody whims of one in favour of more tempered policies. And while many still flinched at their mere mention of the armistice, Thrall thought it a reprieve the horde sorely needed. Well done! Lothamar Theron called to the two braves, the leader of the blood elves with his long pale hair, scarred and dead left eye, and painstakingly groomed beard raised a chalice. Bravely done! A toast to these fine soldiers of the horde! Lokta! Lokta! Thrall raised his cup, but his eyes fell on an empty seat beside the crimson-clad leader of the Blood Elves. Other pairs of eyes and Lothamar's good one had wandered to that spot throughout the evening. It seemed almost too ironic. Here they were, a council in response to Sylvanus Windrunner's controversial leadership and self-exile and nobody sat in her place to speak for the forsaken. Even the new queen of Zandalar, Talanji, had come from her far-off nation to meet with the council. She sat almost exactly across from Thrall, in the circle of chairs making up the council in the hold, and she had said little so far, something, he knew, that was uncharacteristic of the brash young queen. Beside her, nearest to the entrance, sat the also newly risen trade prince of the Buildwater Cartel, and while Gaslo might have been diminutive in size, he had made his larger-than-life presence known throughout the day's reports, discussions and disagreements. And that's all we wrote for this episode of Del Radio. Hope you liked it and us. Tune in next week for more dispatches from your favorite nerdy book publisher. And if you can't wait that long, you can always follow us on social media at Delray Books. 
or sign up for our newsletter at randomhousebooks.com slash Delray Newsletter. Until next time, bye. bye. Del Radio is produced, edited, and hosted by Ashley Heaton and Julie Lung. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps more listeners to find our show.